Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a new podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'll be talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Peter York is a writer, broadcaster, management consultant and cultural commentator best known for his astute and acerbic observations about British culture and life. He was co-author of the Sloan Ranger Handbook, a massive bestseller back in the 80s, and has been a columnist for publications ranging from Harper's and Queen to Management Today and the Sunday Times. His books include Dictator's Home, a book I remember opening with delight in the book cupboard at The Independent, Modern Times, and Authenticity is a Con. He presented Peter York's Hipster Handbook on BBC4 in 2016 and is currently President of the Media Society and a visiting professor at the University of the Arts attached to the London College of Fashion. In this conversation, recorded during lockdown, he talks about the cult of authenticity, why you should never call yourself a creative and why corporate social responsibility is a con. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. We're talking today after nearly two months of lockdown in the UK. How has it been for you? Um, perfectly all right. Um, uh, there's one of those things you met. People always used to talk about um, who in who can endure um, uh, a solitary time best. What sorts of people? What sorts of personalities? What sorts of backgrounds? And the answer is a middle class only child. <laughs> um, uh, I mean. Um, on the one hand, I'm somebody who goes out six nights a week, often in succession. So you'll go to one drinks party, one book launch, and then you'll see somebody and, and somebody else, and you've said, shall we go to dinner together? That's my normal week. I go to lots and lots and lots of things, and now I don't go to anything at all. I never leave the house. It's perfectly all right. Mm. Um, before we get into the broader discussion, I'd love to hear more about your, well, I want to focus more on you and your yes. career. And yes. uh, obviously, um, you're best known as a cultural commentator and trend spotter. When I started out, you said in a piece in The Telegraph a few years ago, I always saw what I did as being about the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and I still do. Now, it's quite a thing to be Mr. Zeitgeist. Do you mean I really said that word in the telegraph? I can't believe it. You did. You did. And you got away with it. And um, and what I want to know is, I've always thought of you as that. I know people have said style guru, which I think is a ridiculous phrase. And also anyone who said that, you know, obviously doesn't know you because that's about something else, really. But what, it's, what, what it's confusing. It's confusing social commentation with fashion writing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So what got you started on this path? Tell me, what, when you left school, what happened next? Um, when I left school, I'm completely uneducated, which is an enormous advantage, mm. um, I must say. Um, but the, uh, the crucial thing uh, that goes, uh, the crucial read across for me is that I'm, I am by background a market researcher. Mm. So um, where you're, um, and it's, I don't know, applied social science. I did have, 
I did have various goes at, um, tiny goes at education. And it is applied social science, and it borrows from the social sciences in a very freehand way. In a freehand way, um, by which I mean it uses what works. Um, but, and it has to work. It has to definably, demonstrably improve um, the client's lot or they won't want to pay for your services. So that makes people more focused and faster. Academics are very, very slow. Mm. Um, mm. So uh, what market research encourages you to do is, I mean, there's clever market research and there's not quite so clever market research. And the person who I worked for was very, very clever and very interested in social questions and very interested in art in the arts and very interested in design and sometimes in that primeval time used to appear on the television or write for the Sunday Times about these sorts of things, which was very exciting. Who was he's a, that? He's a, um, um, an American called Conrad Jameson. Mm. Tremendous. Well, he was completely heroic and he talked uh, um, uh, the hind legs off any mammal you can imagine and he was very, very amusing. And so how did you, what, what got you, did you just apply for a job? Did you bump into him? How did you get no, your of course first I, job? Of course I met him through friends, of course. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> anyway. And, and uh, so how did that develop into the cultural commentating? Well, because we were doing, a, 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 what we were doing all the time was cultural commentation, because you were asking all the, it was a, um, we used a combination of, quantitative and qualitative market research with the emphasis on the qualitative because quali because qualitative work explained things better than the quantitative work did and explained people and explained media and explained um, what is now called the um, underpinning of what's called behavioral economics or nudge in other words what I do understand about Dominic Cummins is he's got a lot of the same toolkit as me. Fascinating. Mm. And he loves group discussions. Well, yeah. I am the veteran of a thousand group discussions all over the world. Thousands of group discussions. I mean, I've done them. I've done group discussions in Tokyo. Now, obviously, I don't have Japanese at, at all, let alone fluent Japanese, but the thing is, you train up, you uh, you brief the moderator, and you listen through uh, uh, two-way translation, simultaneous simultaneous translation, and you're watching your respondents behind a two-way mirror in Japan. Wow. So would you say that your all those thousands of focus groups you've done mm. have been the main thing that have kept you so close well, to the site guys um it's pretty important isn't it so maybe you can see who defers to who what sorts of things what sorts of information lie behind because you can tease out you know for instance in a poll in polling when somebody says um, something mad, sweepingly mad you can't say why do you say that but in um, a qualitative situation, you can say, why do you say that? Mm. 
So you can um, and you can tease out what it is they believe and where it is they got it. So, for instance, did you know that 31% of Brexit voters in the UK believe, and the source for this is very, very respectable, very Cambridge, very peer-reviewed, very all that stuff, 31% of Brexit voters believe there is an effective ongoing plot to get, get rid of all the white people in in the country, replace them with Muslims and impose Sharia law. Oh, goodness. Oh, 31%. Now, it's difficult not to think that that impacted on people's voting choices. When did this start being called behavioural economics? Um, quite recently, over the last 20, 25 years, um, uh, and anyway, it's uh, people like, so, it's what we've done. Uh, I've got a sort of manifesto uh, written in the 1970s by the, my, this great employer of mine called Sense and Nonsense of Motivational Research, which is absolutely the nudge manifesto. Mm. But it, sound, it sounds good, doesn't it? Because if you add the economics to something, it's like the Institute of Economic Affairs. You make it, yeah, you, you, give it you give it gravitas. Yeah, well, I think I personally think it's a pseudo science, and I think we've been this entire management of, of this pandemic yes. has been handed over to yes. pseudo scientists. But well, anyway, that's a, that's a whole other deal. Let's focus on. Um, I mean, you and I could talk about yes. the of pandemic and the Cummings affair forever, but let's focus mm. on the subject in hand. So, what which aspects of your work as a uh, market researcher and, uh, and and management consultant? I mean, yes. would you say that those okay, two? Well, uh, I'll give it. Uh, uh, I mean, the easy definition goes as follows. Mm. Um, uh, there are various level, levels of what your client might expect of you. Tell me what they say um, is, is basic polling. Um, tell me what it means, that sort of interpretive um, uh, qualitative or quantitative market research. Tell me what I can do about it you jump the species barrier and you're a, you're a management consultant. Oh. <laughs> it's, very, it's very easy definitions. If people are relying um, on you not as input, you know, and what do the polls say, but as an advisor, then you're a management consultant. And that is the way um, that... For quite early on, um, I performed and and was rewarded. So when did you? So has how much of your work has been management consultancy and how much of it has been market research? Well, um, in a way, they're indivisible because um, I wouldn't want to advise on something without having talked extensively to real people or mm. caused people who I trusted to talk extensively to real people. So it's always driven by market research, but it just goes that level beyond. So they really are indivisible. It's, I mean, the answer is, at that point, um, uh, whenever it was, and I was confident um, and also credible to clients as somebody they wanted to ask, what should I do? What should I do? 
You know, this whole idea of the the lonely chief executive. What should I do? It's lonely at the top. All that stuff. Mm. And which aspects of of that work did you like most and which did you like least? Um, I don't, I can't, whatever I found boring, I didn't notice or got somebody else to do uh, is the, the short answer to that. So I can barely remember. Most of it was completely fascinating. Mm. And, the, and the, so outside that, I'd, the first thing you became incredibly well known for uh, was the Sloan Ranger handbook, which I remember reading. And um, I was at Durham and in fact, we called the Sloans Ra's at Durham for some reason. Have yes. you heard of that? Yeah. Yes, and then, of course, absolutely. they were... They were renamed Sloans after you wrote that. Yes. <laughs> and um, and um, my, my, experience, my experience was that during Freshers' Week, they would talk to you. And literally, after Freshers' Week, they didn't talk to you. And they had these invisible antennae. They all wore Guernsey jumpers, pearls, and they all gravitated towards each other and lived out in little houses and went off to each other's country houses at weekends. And that was the last we saw of them. Um what kind of got you into that? Because, I mean, that must have been, it was a, it was a national phenomenon. What yeah. got you into it and how, and what effect did it have on your life? Uh, it was, I mean, one, I started writing by a happy accident on Harper's and Queen. Harper's and Queen was a, you know, absolutely a Sloan hub. Oh, you know, it was a Sloan hub. It was written for Mrs. Sloan in Sloanshire, who bought it in the hope. It's very, very Jane Austenish. It's very Mrs. Bennet, in the hope that she'd learn the the marvelous secret which would enable her daughter to marry a duke. That was it. That was the real formula. And there was a top dressing of what we'd now call smart metro metropolitan metropolitan eliteness but the idea was and it you you can see it at its most naked in tatler you know gorgeous um um the gorgeous billionaires of belarus uh, sort of thing uh, you know gorgeous uh, billionaires of belarus in chelsea uh, that stuff which has then gone and throw into um, and uh, it's a made in Chelsea. But uh, then it was the real thing. It was completely the real thing. It was central to that. And I was seeing and working with Sloney people all day. Mm. And what effect did it have on your life to have written that massive bestseller? It meant, um, one, that uh, uh, lots of... <laughs> Lots of people thought you were wonderful and lots of people thought you were awful. <laughs> um, and so um, in the context in the context of um, um, punk and new music, <laughs> which I was very fascinated by, I love. And this is pre, this is pre uh, full on, um, um, you know, punk was pre full on uh, Sloan, but the, uh, you know, where I... Yeah where you were writing from. Would you say that you were the one of the first people to identify key tribes as a kind of... I can't think of anyone else who has done it in quite well, the way you have. Uh, uh, I, I was the... Uh, no, I wasn't 
but I did it in a, in a sort of later sort of market researchy sort of way, and, and I was in the business of giving them names. But mm. um, let's not forget the master, um, namely Tom Wolfe. Of um, course. But he was of doing course. it there. Yes. Um, I'm glad to say I didn't have so much competition here. Mm. And the most recent one, perhaps, was the hipster. I mean, the one that really got attention with that fantastic most enormous fun, and you had to do it. And I kept on thinking, somebody's going to do it. It's been going on for so long. Like, yes. Do you know, somebody's going to do it. And they, amazingly, they didn't. They left like, the yeah. way clear for me. And you, you just, you know, making that little film, I felt I'm, I've done a genius thing of keeping a completely straight face. When people are being uh, uh, absolutely absurd, you know, I watched it, and you could see every sort of um, flicker which said, "This is preposterous." Um, uh, and <laughs> from so you, from you, you mean? From me, yeah, from me, yes. <laughs> and you could see I was no good at keeping a straight face at all. <laughs> But I thought one of the things you, I mean, it's a few years ago now, but I, I, um, what was it 2015? I've lost track or 2016. Some, um, something like that. Anyway, mm. yes, that um, sort of. I mean, one of the things I thought that was so interesting sociologically, really, was, for example, the lack of music. Um, the fact that it was all about um, consumption, really, that this sort it, of... Uh, exactly. Um, and so it wasn't, a, it wasn't a youth thing at all, in any sense. Hipsters were older. Hipsters were anywhere between 22 and... I mean, they were postgraduate. It was, whatever mm. people said, fantastically middle class. You didn't get mm. unmiddle class hipsters. No. Um, uh, and it wasn't. It was neither youth nor working class, and it was focused on consumption, and it was focused on um, sort of slight what I'm afraid the spectator loves to call virtue signalling kind of consumption, and and it was focused also on you know that long-standing thing of gentrifying formerly artisanal things yes. and talking about artisan this and artisan that. Um, so it was it was preposterous and very very funny but also what it was i suppose was an incredibly successful marketing exercise because it was rebranding all kinds of things so that yeah. they were the you know the hip thing to do the um craft where everything is crafted a cup of coffee yeah. is crafted um where i live uh, normally in and with my boyfriend in northamptonshire following the deputy chief medical officer's um, instructions to move in with your partner for lockdown. Um, but normally I live in Stoke Newington and uh, there are just hundreds and hundreds of cafes. Which Central, is it? So are you in Northampton or not? Yes, Northampton now, yes. yes. Oh, very exciting. Um, yes, um, surrounded by sheep, lovely. They might be yeah. my main company for the last uh, two yeah. months. But um, in Stoke Newington, of course, there is rather more company and loads of cafes, which sadly yes. will be in a very bad way now. But yes. I've lived there so long that I can tell instantly which cafes will survive and which won't. And the ones that will survive are the ones that look exactly like all the other ones, which have got the the stripped brick, the not matching yeah. um, furniture. Yes. It, it's a very, very particular and now very dated vibe, actually. And anyone who tries to do anything different, it just doesn't work because conformism is absolutely at the heart yes. of the whole hipster thing. It is. It's very conformist. Um, amazingly conformist. 
and very uh, consumption-driven and very sort of today's version of entrepreneurial. Yes, So absolutely. it's an idea, it's a vision, it's a brand. And what it means, because it's um, – do you remember they, uh, my favourite uh, description of any sort of consumable is handmade by nuns. It's like <laughs> – it's like handmade by nuns, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it's it's a, 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 a artisanal expertise done by people who aren't artisans. And yes. that enables you to charge premium prices. It's justifying. It's the great thing, um, the great old trade of luxury goods. You, you create a brand... Um, uh, and you defend that brand in terms of the way it presents itself anywhere it goes, anything made by, and you destroy uh, you you, uh, you, you um, anyone who uh, traduces that brand in any way, imitates the brand. You know, if you make uh, you know people have have suits against people who make fake Cartiers and have steamrollers to crush them. Well, it's you. You spend an enormous amount of time defending and presenting your brand. And this is just a new version of that. Hipster stuff is a new version of luxury brands. Very interesting. And what it's also about, of course, is something you've written a book about, which is the cult of authenticity. Yes. You've said that uh, authenticity is a word you tend to hear from people who have something to sell. And it reminds you of the fast one that's about to be pulled. Yes. Now, you could argue that it reached its acme with the election of a prime minister famed for his authenticity, an authenticity some people might regard as a construct. Where do you think we are with authenticity now? Well, I think it's um, again, all of those things are going to come under tremendous pressure because people have learnt um, how things really are. Um, uh, the idea, the the point about um, our blessed prime minister was the i the idea he was um, uh, a telly star, a personality, and that sort of means that's the same as authentic. You don't just um, he talked in a an engaging uh, and um, you know sort of. Um, whimsical way, uh, and for new for a lot of people who didn't know what, the, uh, who weren't used to those people, to any anyone beyond a certain plimsoll mark socially can do a Boris Johnson, but if you don't know, if you've never met a person like Boris Johnson, if you've never met um, a sort of whimsical Etonian, you don't know what what it sounds like. So you think, oh, this is rather in, original, rather engaging, rather authentic. Mm. Mm. Well, I suppose one of the things about authenticity is that what we're currently living through, we're seeing that whatever front you put on, there are other things that uh, you can't hide, like, for example, death statistics, um, which I won't go into in great detail in this podcast because it probably doesn't isn't right, the right forum. But perhaps I'm just wondering whether given how high the stakes are at the moment in so many areas, in terms of people dying, in terms of serious long-term illness, in terms of people dying 
or or suffering severe illness because they can't get to hospitals, which you know may, may not be COVID related, and of course in terms of job losses, losses of businesses, and so on. Maybe I mean this is authentic experience. It's horrible authentic experience. Do you think this might have some impact on the fashion for authenticity as a kind of business? Um, I think I mean, there are some very very hard lessons which are practically unavoidable coming out of this. Um, one is inequality, Jamal. Um, uh, inequality with its at a horrible measure in health and morbidity. Yeah. Um, inequality in terms of class, inequality in terms of race as well. Mm. And we've had to focus on it. We've been sitting at home and watching newscasts which point this out in a pretty inexorable way. And we go and we clap for health service people and for, for vital workers who we know are very badly rewarded. I, we're all very, you know, one could say we're sentimental about these jobs at the moment. We're calling them we key are. workers and we're saying that, you know, it's great. But of course, as you say, we don't reward them in terms of um, money or job security or all kinds of other things. I think there's a lot of um, optimism emerging out of this pandemic with people saying, oh, you know, we'll see what kind of work really matters. Well, we'll see when we pay them properly. And um, I'm just wondering how optimistic or pessimistic you are about the future that comes out of this. I think now it's um, it's easier to make a clear-cut argument about fairness now because you know there there was that great survey which showed that in America, fifty percent of the population or more would be underwater if a $400 bill came in unexpectedly. If 50% of the American population, I think, anyway, they'd be think, how ridiculous. But how very, you know, but with uh, even high-earning people who are maxed out in credit terms, completely maxed out, and it shows you the extraordinary vulnerability, you know, on the one hand, of what looked like very sparkly structures, and it also shows you the great vulnerability of people who think, sort of, who bought the uh, bought, bought the whole thing, who think um, uh, um, um, that somehow um, they're going to make it happen. They've been told that they can make it happen on their own, and now they realise they can't make it happen on their own. They need big government to save them. And in future, people will believe. I mean, my God, if I were if I were running a trade union, I'd be um, um, sharpening my knife now. Mm. Because well, people, it, yeah. people need unions. Unions yeah. have been relentlessly uh, elbowed out of you know of the political scene, and they need to come back because people need them. You know, people think that they can, you know, this lovely idea um, when you're a, a part of the, actually part of the precariat and thinking of yourself as a little economic, a self, um, a self-activated economic unit, the economy of me. Well, you're not an economy of me, you're casual labour. 
Well, this is one of the things that worries me most, because, as we know, at times of recession and depression, money is, you know, much tighter. Businesses tend to get more ruthless. Uh, capitalism is more red in tooth and claw. And it seems to me that if employers can cut costs and buy things in yes. on a gig economy, never waste, basis, a good, never waste a good crisis. We never waste a good crisis. I think that's the path we could very easily go down, and we don't have another election for four and a half years, mm. and there will be an enormous amount of damage before then. What can be done to encourage businesses not to behave in that? ruthless way at the moment i mean we, we will be looking at, a, at at essentially a nation well a, a world that is traumatized anyway with very high levels of uh, mental ill health and stress and as we know economic insecurity is one of the things that increases that do you have any words of I think offer? In, in, in some ways this government has made a rod for its own back which I'm glad of, because in saying, um, in talking about furloughs and the 80% rule and all those things, um, enormous pent-up fury. I think one of the things that's happened, and um, the Dominic Cummings thing makes it very clear, that um, that whole thing of equal sacrifice being demanded is now a very, very important emotion. Mm. We're, um, we're going to toe the line, but we expect everybody to toe the line. And it's a very old-fashioned British thing, which we didn't expect of new-fashioned young British people. But mm. it's, um, I think it's not age-related now. We expect people to give equal sacrifice. And so I was thinking, this woman was saying, um, on, you know, you and yours, one of those helpy things on uh, Radio 4 was saying um, to an employment expert, I've been furloughed, but I actually haven't had any money, meaning my employer's stolen it. And I was thinking, tell us his name and we'll send the boys round. You know, I mean, it, 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 absolutely instinctively, that's terrible. We talked about authenticity. Um, there are lots of business buzzwords which are to do with the values that businesses claim they have. And uh, so I wondered, for example, what you think about transparency and what will happen to that now? Well, all those things. I mean, transparency is slightly different from some of the other things because it's a fancy word um, for quite an understandable thing, which is making it clear what you are doing. Whereas the other things like vibrancy and authenticity and creativity and mm. inclusivity are quite difficult to translate into anything in normal English. Transparency actually is getting very close to something legally enforceable. Mm. It's documentation. And in a in a business context, um, how can you encourage businesses? What does it mean to encourage a business to be transparent? Well, um, there are two parts to it. One is the traditional idea that you uh, you uh, told people uh, that there was money in it. 
there's a whole sort of there's a whole subsection of most large public relations um, uh, companies um, which is concerned uh, who are anyone who's managing a big brand over time, big corporate brand over time. As we're here we're talking about corporate. Sometimes mm. the product brand and the corporate brand are the same. Sometimes they're not. But managing a big corporate brand over time and um, um, is CSR. CSR, yeah. 20 years ago, corporate social responsibility, big buzzy word. And that meant getting your senior employers to run marathons. <laughs> I'm being uh, contemptuous, but it was the mm. idea, it was, uh, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you didn't change behaviour. You didn't change fundamental behaviour, but you represented things and you worked in the community and you did art sponsorship and you did that sort of stuff. And you did that sort of stuff in order to stave off demands for regulation. It was mm. a substitute for regulation, for making you do the right thing, appearing to do the right thing voluntarily, was a way of avoid, like a lot of big American philanthropy, it was a way of staving off regulation. And there's a marvellous American Indian who talks most compellingly about this, but I can't say his name. That mm -hmm. he's completely wonderful in this, in the same way that that Dutch guy Rutger Bergman, I think he's called something approximately like that who went to Davos and said all the and went on a panel and said stop saying all this stuff and just pay your taxes yeah exactly exactly so exactly so so Peter can we is there a role for genuine we call it what you like CSR social responsibility basically can well, we get the, the other part of it, so one it's a whole set of postures which companies take in order to and in order to stave uh, um, to create um, and build their brands and to stave off regulation. And um, what really matters is that the sorts the next and the next generations of entrepreneurs will actually have and this uh, particular intervention, well, the current state of affairs, could change people's experience, could mm. make people who were more genuinely concerned about us all being in it together because together we fall. That's, uh, uh, and that's the important bit. Do you know, if you listen to the, I mean, the influence of the opaquely funded um, uh, um, free market think tanks yeah, um, are peddling um, 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 and have been peddling for a long time now. Really, really toxic stuff. Mm. Um, have you read Dark Money? No. It's the most, most important book on this sort of thing there is. Dark Money by the wonderful Jane Mayer at The New Yorker which looks at the way that American politics was moved to the right by the employment of vast sums of money owned by people who are vastly rich in their, uh, um, in their own interests 
and huge amounts of um, behavioral economics, nudge cleverness, and astroturf. You know about astroturf? Well, I know what it is, but I don't know much about it. Um, um, astroturf is fake grass. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So when people talk about astroturf in political terms, what they mean is organisations which purport to be um, grassroots ones, but in mm. fact are created and publicised and, um, and financed by rich people, professional people from the centre working through their lobbyists, their PRs, their etc. So the great um, astroturf organisation is the Tea Party. Mm. But there are a great many, anything called Americans for Progress, Americans for Loveliness, Mothers for Gorgeousness, um, mm. etc. is almost always has a, you know, um, a public relations firm behind it. Yeah, well, we certainly have our own equivalents and here. Dominic, and, sorry, Dominic Cummins grew up um, uh, through those sorts of situations, you know, when mm. he um, um, when he was um, um, you know business for Sterling, etc. His he cut his teeth on that sort of stuff, on that sort of stunting and and so on. And the Americans did it first, but Dominic Cummings is very, very, very aware of how these things were done in America. That's why he's so very aware of, of market research. Yes. I mean, it, it, it all looks incredibly grim from a political point of view and lethal. But do you think that, I mean, my hope is that people are beginning to see how lethal it is. At least everybody... I, I, I think, look... I started with an advantage in seeing this stuff in that I knew about the mainstream world of marketing and mm. the clever world of market research. I've seen recently, over the last five years or so, how it's been employed, more than that, how it's been employed to toxic effect by very, very well-resourced, very focused um, right-wing propaganda. It's absolutely extraordinary the scale of right-wing propaganda in this country and in America. Well, we've seen the we've certainly seen the Cambridge Analytica, which is kind of the most extreme example yes. of it. But yep. um, given your expertise in this area, and given we don't want to be well, ideally, would prefer not to go and top ourselves now. How can this stuff be employed to good, both for society and for? businesses or do you need such vast sums of money to do it that the good the goodies can't compete with the baddies well i mean there is one very very simple thing uh, um uh, the fight far with far thing works up to a point but be aware that in terms of right-wing propaganda in its various purposes is one it's fantastically focused because it's focused on what works. It's not a junior common room situation. Um, it's fantastically well resourced. And there are people who wake up every morning knowing that from 9.30, they will have to invent the best smears they can against whoever it is. They will have to direct trolls 
real human beings and bots and whatevers to attack their enemies with falsehoods. They do this as a job, a really well-paid job, every day. Um, they are um, they are inventing completely fraudulent organisations, new organisations every day. So you, 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 uh, the fight back starts by being aware of what's being done and how it's being done. I say this, you know, as a soppy middle class centrist. Mm. Mm. And just to go back more to the kind of how people will earn a living, because all of this is, it's quite easy to feel a bit overwhelmed by the um, malign, malign intents that do seem to be, well, they, they created um, Trump and uh, they created the division that led to Brexit and um, unfortunately have created this government which is not looking after us at the moment to put it mildly people will have to earn a living and to go back to your earlier point about individual brands I mean and indeed about creativity if people want to have a creative career now many of the traditional options even through journalism are not open to them because so many of those industries are in decline and uh, tragically even more are likely to be in decline after this. What hope can you offer to people who do want to create um, an interesting and semi-creative career for themselves in which they will have well, to push themselves as a brand because that's the only yeah. way to do it? Um, I'm slightly sensitive to the word creative. I, mean, I know I, you I, are. I was going I to ask you about that separately, but can we, can we use it as a shorthand for now? Yes. And I'll ask you it's more a about short, it. A, a shorthand for now for... Um, outside of the obvious mainstream, yeah. there's a rather effective organisation called Creative Industries Federation, which is about all all sorts of quotes creativity, um, uh, and including very commercial creativity, and makes the case that we Brits are very good at it, and it brings in a lot of money, and it brings in more money than manufacturing, etc., etc. Um, that. Um, all the subsectors in there are under immense pressure now. You know, the, all, well, a, a lot of that is you know, the entertainment, um, um, catering, and residential mm. things, which are rather uh, creative. Um, so, on. under huge pressure, and I don't know whether it'll ever come back. Mm. So, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's really very difficult. And because, to some extent, um, it provides the raw material for uh, lots of other fight-back things, um, uh, it's a problem. Um, I don't have a magic answer um, at all, uh, but it will. there will be an enormous cull of lots of ways, of lots of things that people can live without, um, uh, um, and lots of ways in a very complex, rather rich society, people have a making their living. Mm. And so what if you if you were to address a group of 21 year olds now uh, thinking, how the hell am I going to earn a living mm. now? And I'll have to do it for a long time because I probably won't have a pension and I'll have the biggest debt 
in mm. for you know 100 years 300 years actually uh, to mm. pay off mm. collectively mm. what do you think would be the areas to look out for well i wouldn't address them without listening to them mm. um, uh, i'd start by listening to them and see where jointly and severally they'd got to and what what their expectations were and how they were changing and how they how they needed to be change it yet more so for instance i really would say join a union and if there isn't one make one um would be one thing yeah. um uh, i would you know if they thought um uh, i would be listening out for scapegoating you know easy answers to complex problems and be wanting to disabuse them of the idea that it was um, the Chinese or you know uh, Jewish financiers George Soros who, who were responsible for everything that was wrong in the world um, uh, and I would want to disabuse them of that and then I want to think um, you know about the ideas that they did have the sorts of ideas you can't deal you may, you can't have a clinic for everyone the sorts of ideas, how you might develop those sorts of ideas um, in a sort of post-COVID world. I'm not sure there's going to be a, you know, a, a past-COVID world, a post-COVID mm. world, but, you know, I mean, they were, may very well never develop a vaccine. Mm. Um, and it's an extraordinary flexible and... Um, anarchic virus mm. um, but I would want to think you know how could you make that or um, should you be saying don't don't set your sights on that don't set your sights on what don't set your sights on whatever it is you set your sights on and may not be doable well, I think that's part of the, the challenge, isn't it? Mm. Because I do think the millennial generation in particular have absorbed the idea that work has to be your passion and you have to have a sense of purpose and you, mm. you, know, you create this path which is meaningful and so on. And, I, and that's going to be such a huge luxury in the world mm. we face now. But nobody wants to go around dashing people's dreams and saying, forget all that, just go and work in your local care home, you'll find it fulfilling. No. Um, so, you know, where do what, how, how do we, you know, find, forge a path between those two things? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'd like to listen to it. I mean, one of the things um, I started doing, meaning I've done one, was um, Robert Peston's speeches for schools. And I went and oh, right. I, yes. I went and talked to an extraordinary um a class, very large class of 14 year olds in a boys school in suburban Kent. Mm. And they were very quiet and very respectable, but, you know, un, un, untroubled by doubt or, you know, mm. so they didn't, they didn't, I, 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 you wanted to sort of, and of course I couldn't in that context, um, get them out of themselves a bit and get their imaginations working because they didn't seem to be. Mm. They were, they, were, they were very clean and tidy and very well behaved. Terribly polite. <laughs> now, I want to ask you about creativity. Mm. So um, how do you, I know you don't like the word. Um, yes. So what don't you like about it and where is it permissible? 
Um, what I don't like about it is it's borrowing from it's if you say that what you do is creative, um, uh, then it's defined as a, a sectoral assumption. If you do that sort of job, it's creative. And you do that sort of job, it isn't. Work in a certain kind of job, in a certain kind of media, you're creative. Yeah. And, if it, and the most extreme form of this would be, I can remember, I couldn't, you know, I could never let it go as a joke. Um, uh, um, if you were sitting um, with advertising people uh, and you would say, and what is it that you do? And, and that person would say, I'm a creative. Mm. And you'd think, you know, uh, oh dear, does your mother know? Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it just made you it made you laugh in a completely absurd way. You know, how could any grown person talk about themselves like that? Well, well I, I, it's I don't like that. that. Creative people are touched by magic. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> and um, you know, and, and other people aren't touched by magic. And creative people are better than the rest of us because mm. they are touched by magic. They have an inherent magicality. And, of course, it isn't true. Um, uh, and if you look at, um, uh, in creative, um, um, you know, there is a very, and it's getting worse, not better, in the creative professions, um, the class bias is enormous. Well, even journalism, I, I mean, I, I didn't, as I said, when I went to university, we met, uh, we all met Sloanes in our first week and then they kind of disappeared. And um, I, I first met lots of privately educated people at in publishing. And then when I went into journalism, it was the same. Funnily enough, in the arts, Lester, I worked as an in-arts admin for many years and I, I ran the Poetry Society for a few mm. years and came across many... That was much more meritocratic, actually. But journalism, I was really shocked that so many people had got in through someone they knew. And every job I'd ever had, I'd applied through an ad in The Guardian. I didn't know anyone. Mm. I didn't have any networks. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know I sound like the Queen, but, you know, nobody pulled any strings. And, and it literally, I just... Mm. Um, you know, applied for jobs and, and, you know, either didn't get them or got them. But um, I was really shocked when I went into journalism to discover so many people uh, were from the 7% of, of, the, of the population mm. that is privately educated. And as mm. you say, that, that does seem to have got worse. I think these things are quite complicated. But as we know, there's now all this work on uh, diversity and not just diversity in terms of gender or race diversity but gen uh, but diversity of thinking and class and background mm. um, and of course it's you know the precise absence of that that we're seeing in our government at the moment um, on, a, on a more frivolous uh, note you, we talked about you being a style guru and both agreed that that was about the surface about fashion rather mm. than about the cultural stuff under underneath it you've written very uh, wittily about how um the richer you are the more likely you are to uh, wear you know what you call baby grows you know hoodies and tracksuit bottoms mm. and trainers and I, I was particularly amused when you talked about um companies in uh, so-called silicon roundabout uh who uh startups or whatever who will wear dress quite normally during the week but then when the um when the financiers come in they quickly put on their hoodies and put their mountain yes. bikes in the hall and exactly. all that. <laughs> but 
if we're all going to be sitting at, if we're all going to be sitting at home for the rest of our lives what's going to happen to clothes and style well, um, for one thing it's amazing what you can do without i mean it's taught mm. people what they can do without mm. um, as somebody who, um, who i think clothes are very important and you know an important way of thinking about the world design is an important way of thinking about the world and so on. So it can be, if used by the right people in the right way, it can focus quite a lot. So um, it, what it's done is interrupt the fashion cycle in a sense that, that it, it's missing several beats and people may lose the tune, that whole tune, because fashion is, amongst other things, a conscious rejection of what went before. And if there isn't a what went before, you'll have lost the plot. And you, you you will know what you can do without. And certainly an awful lot of people will know that they needn't keep up with the Kardashians anymore ever again. And in fact, when you think about the Kardashians, um, uh, one wants to be frivolous, but a certain sort of loathing enters the picture, doesn't it? Just well, I yeah. Well, I don't. I I literally have no interest in any of that stuff. I mean, not even from an anthropological point of view. I barely. I would barely recognise them. I don't follow fashion. There are lots um, of them. The yeah. They're yeah. they very numerous. <laughs> it seems to me that if we find a vaccine, and if that is in I don't know eighteen months, two years, whatever, then we will turn return to some kind of normal though obviously huge numbers of businesses will have gone bust in the meantime yes if we don't find a vaccine we will obviously have to find a way to live with this and maybe we'll suddenly turn into south korea it seems unlikely but maybe in a couple of years we'll turn into south korea so maybe even then we'll be able to lead a kind of socially distanced version of normal life but I'm just wondering, so, you know, if we don't find a vaccine, for yes. example, could that be the end of fashion? You know, I mean, there are whole uh, industries that might sort of disappear, restaurants, cafes, pubs. Mm, what, what do you think? Mm, mm. Uh, uh, not all of it, but quite a lot of it. There will be a lot of interiorisation because if people are having, again, to have to live and work at home a mm. lot of the time, mm. they will want it to work for them. Do you know, they may not be wanting to show off Hygiene is a hugely important social value. That will stay. And functionality and ergonomics of your place, if you're really locked down and going to live in it, you will want it to work brilliantly well. So people who can demonstrate, not fashion um, in the house, but things that work brilliantly, will have um, people will beat a path to their door, like they do for super bicycles. Yes, that's uh, that's very interesting. I've been exchanging emails with former former colleagues who are now friends who, you know, we've all got, you know, backache or shoulder ache and, you know, what kind of laptop mm. riser can you mm. get? What kind of chair mm. can you get? Things like that. Oh, well, I, I uh, cracked and bought a milk frother so I could have a flat white at home. There you see. <laughs> and it's very nice, I must say. Um, final question. Obviously, things are pretty grim at the moment and they could be grim for a long time if you could name one realistic hope for what could be better afterwards what would that be in relation to work the world of work in relation to everything absolutely everything fairer the way yeah. fairer yeah uh, um, uh, greater fairness 
Um, uh, that's what you know. Greater fairness, less lying. Yeah, well, I'll I'll drink to that. I would drink to that if we were at a party yes. and we're not, yes. and I don't know if we'll ever be at a party I, together again. I haven't, I haven't had a drink since I was last went to, to a party, and I think the very last party I went to involved Keir Starmer. Really? Yes. He was what? at it. Oh, what was it? It was the launch of Polly Toynbee's new book. Oh, my goodness. And do you never drink on your own? No. Mm. So I've gone from being uh, um, an absolutely kippered, constantly kippered um, uh, person <laughs> to being somebody who hasn't had a drink for um, uh, nine weeks or whatever it is. <gasps> How different? Do you feel different? No. No. No, I don't. Um, but I don't. Anyway, I don't feel better or worse. Or no, or, I don't feel. I don't feel better when I don't drink. I love. I love drinking. Um, mm. And I miss it. I when absolutely I drink. adore it. But I'm not going to do it. And I, I might not conspicuously feel better, but it might be better. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I still hope we can see each other at a party mm. and have a Me drink. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was absolutely My very great fascinating. Pleasure. Really, well, well, really well, well done. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.